There once was a vibrant monastery that in recent years had fallen on hard times. Once full of life and learning, there were fewer and fewer visitors, and the number of monks and nuns had dwindled to five. Desperate for advice on how to save the dying order, the leader, leader of the monastery, the abbot, ventures out to find the wise rabbi in the neighboring woods. When he arrives at the rabbi's hut and explains the purpose of his visit, the rabbi nods his head and listens, but provides no concrete advice on how to save the monastery. I'm sorry, he says, but truly I have nothing to offer you. But I do know this, the Messiah, the Savior, is among you. Now go on and return home. Disappointed, the abbot returns to the monastery and shares with his fellow monks that the rabbi had little to offer other than this mysterious comment about the Messiah being among them. Over the following weeks and months, the monks and nuns ponder the significance of the rabbi's words. Surely the Messiah couldn't be one of us here at the monastery, thinks Brother Thomas. But if he is among us, well, he must be speaking of Father Abbot. Father Abbot has served us nobly for more than a generation. Sister Sarah starts to wonder if he was speaking of Father Eldred. Sure, old Father Eldred gets cranky at times, but he's a person of wisdom, and he always has something profound to share when discussing important matters. In the meantime, Brother Eldred begins to notice all the many selfless deeds that Sister Sarah does each day, often when no one is looking. Sarah is always sweeping the synagogue and tidying things up. Perhaps she is the Messiah, but surely it is not Brother Joseph. He is so timid, a real nobody. But then again, as if by magic, he is always there when one of us needs a friend. Maybe Joseph is the Messiah. And Brother Joseph is convinced that any of the others very well could be the Messiah. But surely not me, he thinks. Of course the rabbi wasn't thinking of me. I'm just an ordinary person. But what if it is me? Please, God, don't let it be me. I can't mean that much to you, can I? As the monks begin to reflect deeply about who the Messiah might be, their thoughts rotate, and they begin to see each other in a new light. They begin to treat each other with extraordinary respect. They begin to treat themselves with extraordinary respect on the off chance that any person they live with could be the Messiah. They put a little bit more love into scrubbing the floors and spend a little bit more time reading scripture and writing their sermons, noticing all the many things each of them do so well each day. And slowly but surely, people in the neighboring villages begin to sense a special aura or glow about the monastery and the respect that surrounds each of the monks and fills the halls of the synagogue. And so more and more people begin to come to visit and pray, and they bring their family members and their friends to witness what a special place this monastery is. No one can really explain why, but there is an empowering atmosphere that leaves people feeling joyful and full of dignity and purpose. A year later, a visitor asks Father Abbott if he can stay and join the order. Then another and another, and soon, thanks to the rabbi's gift, the monastery once again grows into a flourishing community, a place full of peace and love and hope. I love this story, the story of the rabbi's gift, a story about love and community. It's a story about respect, how respect empowers people and puts courage in them to live closer to their best selves, and in turn, how giving and receiving signs of respect can transform a community. Respect is the topic of today's sermon. Ecce quam bonum, the opening lines of today's psalm, 
Behold how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. Dwelling together in unity is good and pleasant, but think back to opening day. Over 100 people from different parts of the world, different cultural backgrounds and stages of life, different gifts and carrying different unique burdens. Speaking for myself today, the end of our sixth week, I certainly feel that sense of unity. But how did we get there? It took more than a wish, and believe me, there have been hundreds, maybe thousands of wishes made all over the globe for this season for us. It took a lot of care from you. It took action, it took doing. Respect is a kind of love we do as opposed to a love that we feel. Showing respect to someone means you act in a way that shows you care about their feelings and their well-being. Are there any examples of, of, of ways that we show each other respect at camp with things that you have observed? Max. Taking off your shoes when you're walking with someone else's duty. Taking on your shoes before taking off your shoes before duty. Helping someone if they have slow table duty. Helping out with a slow table duty. Asking someone to walk on their duty. Asking someone before you know that they're gonna say yes, but you do it anyways to show them that respect. Aubrey. Helping someone with their duty. Helping somebody with their duty. Clapping after a performance or a, yeah. Yep, clapping. Respecting others during athletic tournaments or Showing tennis respect match. During athletic competitions, Wesley. Asking someone to tuck in their shirt. Asking somebody to tuck in their shirt in a respectful way. Staying quiet during rest. Staying quiet during rest. Mr. Vinny often talked about rest, not just a time for us to recuperate, but if you don't really want to rest, it's an opportunity, opportunity for you to practice showing respect for others. Holding someone to a higher standard. Holding somebody to a high, high standard, respecting that you know they can meet that potential, they can meet that standard. Wonderful examples, and they've been going around all summer. In all of these examples of respect, people are acting in a way that shows they care about others. You might not agree with a particular rule or decision, the waterfront, on the ball field, during inspection, but we adhere to it and accept it gracefully because we want to show our counselors, our teachers, our peers, our parents, our caretakers, that we value their wisdom and their best intentions. Living in community is not always easy. I think we can get a sense from the story that the monks may not all be the same age, they may not always agree, they get irritated with one another, they're prone to pass judgment. It doesn't take long for those walls to go up and to divide a community. It's only as they begin to focus their attention on the good inside of each other, honoring their best intentions that the community begins to prosper. Think of respect as a type of glue that fastens us to one another, forging strong relationships that are at the core of any good community. Why is this so important? Well, frankly, it is highly unlikely, impossible that you will ever live or work in community with a group of people who are exactly like you. Mr. Ravini would often quote the line, when everyone thinks alike, nobody thinks. Not only is it pleasant when we can overcome differences, but it's been proven time and time again that a diversity of thoughts and different opinions breed better ideas and smarter outcomes. It makes life easier for everyone. It's plainly obvious that a lack of trust and respect is one of the central reasons we have not been able to unite 
as a country around defeating this virus and ending this pandemic. And us versus them mentality has gotten in the way, has prevented us from listening to one another and accepting good, helpful, productive ideas. We can debate, but we need to learn to do it rationally and with some basic respect. It takes the steady application of respect day after day, year after year, to build a community of people who are all different. Respect is one of the greatest community building tools we have in our toolkit. To make the right fix, it often takes a little bit of tactfulness, which is an important element of respect. The way you say something determines how well it will be received. We've all, make we have all met people who like to say things like, oh, I, I just take pride in saying, I just tell it like it is. Over the years, if Kirk or Bubbles had made a habit of just telling me like it is at the waterfront, I promise you I would not still be here today. When giving me advice or directing my attention to things I missed or things I could have done better, they were truthful but tactful at the same time. Hey, what do you think about this? Rich, I noticed this, wanted to get your take. Being really blunt in the name of truth or shooting people down in order to get credit for a point or to sound clever says I could care less about you and I don't care about how it makes you feel. It's closer to meanness than it is to truthfulness. It's not respectful and it will cause others to tune you out, tune out your ideas no matter how good they are, which is a loss for everyone. Through our tact and respect for others, we want to build others up, not to destroy, but to help others grow wiser. Showing respect in the way we approach one another reduces friction and creates bridges between our different understandings of the world. I saw a powerful example of somebody using respect to help a group of people grow wiser in yesterday's baseball game. The council made an error in judgment, and I was part of that. The game should have ended when Wyatt crossed the plate after DJ's hit, but we stayed out there. Should have been a walk-off. But we didn't want to lose. We wanted one more inning to mount a comeback despite there only being 10 minutes left in the activity period. In my heart, I knew this. Rob Harvey clearly knew this. The difference was that Rob said something. He took action. But rather than saying, you're wrong in our huddle and making us feel defensive, he gave us a gentle hud, nudge in the huddle. He said, hey, what do we think about the time here? It was as simple as that. Got us all recognizing something that I think we felt in our hearts. He made his point without making an enemy in the process. And as a result, we were open to listening and following our better angels because we did lose fair and square. My mother was a Camp Onaway roommate and friend of Mr. Vinny's sister. She remembers the time she was visiting the Brodericks in New York City when Mr. Vinny's father was the police commissioner. Mr. Broderick was driving them somewhere and he was pulled over by a police officer for speeding. The officer, officer took his license and was clearly horrified because he just pulled over his boss. After a long pause, conferring with the other officers, his partners, he returned to the car and he said, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to issue a, you a ticket. Mr. Broderick calmly and simply told the officer, that's the right thing to do. You've done your job. In this instance, the police commissioner shows respect to the officer's work, freeing him to continue on doing what is right without fear or needing to second guess his convictions. He shows that respect is not something you dole out arbitrarily based on status, that it goes both ways. And in fact, ties people together 
who are on different platforms in life. Self-respect. Remember Brother Joseph in the story, please don't let it be me, he says. We have a tendency to believe that we don't deserve good things. The imposter syndrome. The idea that I'm not buying my own self-worth. If my achievements impress you, I must be an imposter. Couldn't be me. When he is shown respect by his peers, Joseph starts to think, maybe it is me. He starts to respect himself a little bit more. Jesus said, love thy neighbor as thyself. To respect and love others, it starts with loving and respecting yourself. Loving and respecting yourself is made more difficult by our accomplishment and status-driven culture. When we see self-worth as something we need to earn, and we constantly compete and compare our achievements with others, thinking that is the external evaluation of our deeds that make us worthy of respect. In the story Rogers read, The Temptation of Christ, Jesus is tempted by Satan three times. When he refuses the first two temptations, Satan leads Jesus to the highest point of the temple in Jerusalem, and looking out over all the kingdoms of the earth, he says, Power all over all that you see will be yours. All you have to do is jump. Do it and you're cool. This is a test of Jesus' faith. It's also a test to see how badly he wants to be popular, how badly he wants the glory. Imagine what happens if he jumps. Would have been the most miraculous stunt ever pulled. Instant celebrity. Bearded man in long tunic, leaps off mountain, walks away without a scratch. 50 million likes on TikTok in the first 10 minutes. In order to gain the world, just what might we do? In order to earn praise for an, an achievement, will you lie or cheat? In order to be seen as funny or cool, will you go against what you feel is right and put someone else down? In order to get laughs from peers and feel liked, will you do something foolish or dangerous on purpose? As Jack mentioned in his sermon, the lure of popularity, the desire to be cool and to be accepted, is one of the great temptations that we are confronted with in daily life. Not just for young people in school, but for adults too, for everyone. It's nice to be liked. It's nice to be popular. No one wakes up in the morning hoping to be unpopular that day. Instant gratification comes easily when we take shortcuts and go against that voice in our heads that we know is right. But these moments of petty recognition are short-lived and can bury the admirable qualities that lie within us, preventing them from shining undulled. Jesus asks, what good will it be for a man if he gains the world yet forfeits his soul? My father once described integrity, integrity to me in the following way. We have three selves. The self I am, the self you see, and the self I want to be. When these three are in alignment, that is integrity. The self I am, the self you, the self that others see, and the self I want to be, all in unison. This is integrity. When making decisions, it can be helpful to think about these three selves and to question their alignment. I'll end with one more story. It's one that the poet and author Maya Angelou told often about the first time she met the rapper Tupac Shakur. Tupac Shakur, as many of you know, is a famous rapper, actor, and activist. One day on a set of a movie they were working on together, Dr. Angelou found Tupac in a heated argument with another man outside of his movie trailer. She didn't know who he was. He was yelling and cursing, and people were trying to get away. After a number of attempts to intervene, 
Dr. Angelou finally cut through all the noise and got his attention. She said, when was the last time anyone told you how important you are? Did you know that hundreds of years of struggle were for you so that you could stay alive and be here today? Upon hearing this, Tupac quieted and he started to weep. And Dr. Angelo wiped his face with her hands and talked to him. This fragile portrait of Tupac is striking to me because it's so different from the Tupac I remember listening to and seeing in the news and on television when I was a child. To the public, Tupac was often represented as a criminal by media and politicians, depicted as an angry and irreverent black young man who was degrading the moral fabric of society. At the same time, Tupac's followers following in the hip-hop and entertainment community could be characterized by unwavering loyalty and blind obedience. He was treated like a powerful king who had the power to make or break careers, and people were desperate to belong to his group rather than to be its target. Despite his best intentions to be a voice for young people in the inner cities struggling to be treated with respect and dignity and equal protection under the law, these external factors being demonized on one side and worshiped by blind followers on the other, trapped an otherwise intelligent and introspective young artist inside of a persona that he was never courageous enough to step out of. Make no mistake, Tupac was used to being told that he was important. And on the surface, he had the world at his fingertips. But the self he was, the self others saw, and the self he wanted to be was tragically out of sync. Tupac wanted to be a poet. He started out writing poetry. He went to the prestigious Baltimore School for the Arts. And about his time there, he said, that was the freest I ever felt. He was smart enough to know that the blind loyalty he received from his followers under the guise of respect said more about their own insecurities and fears than it did about his inner qualities. And as a result, I can only imagine he was losing respect for himself, even as his popularity was rising to mythic proportions. What he lacked was an honest reminder of his self-worth. By appealing to his worth, Dr. Angelo showed that she cared not about his celebrity status, but rather his innate inner beauty, his loveliness that he was hiding from others. She addressed him not like a servant, afraid to look in the eyes of a king, but rather on level ground, eye to eye. Despite his many flaws, Maya Angelou's action said, I may not like everything you do and the way you sometimes act, but I recognize and validate your pain. I see the best in you. You are important because you can do a lot of good in this community. It's amazing what barriers can be broken down when we show someone respect by listening to them and looking beyond the surface and seeing their inner light, by empowering them with actions that give grace and dignity. We all have worthiness and loveliness that is apart from how we look, who we know, what we achieve, and any other external factors. Active and productive members of a community who are grounded in self-respect and have the genuine respect of others don't feel trapped. Rather, they are free to be their best selves grace and skill, they strive to share their light, not to blind, but to guide those who are in the darkness, bettering their peers, teams, classrooms, and communities. So to close, close, I'll say the first six weeks of this summer have been really great. But look around you. Look at your chapel partner. I don't know who it is, but someone here, someone incredibly important, is going to do something that helps us to thrive as a community during this last week. I wonder who. <laughs>